Hello and welcome. My name is Alice and this is the Backtracker History Show podcast, where I ask you to join me on a meander down through the archives to find out more about the people, places and events from the past. Most of these podcasts have been specially edited from a Bradley Stoke radio show in Bristol, England. And one of the great things about this podcast is that I can go into more detail about each story because there are no time constraints. And it's really easy to show your support just by spreading the word, leaving reviews and sharing with all your family and friends. It really does help. If you want to get in touch with me with show ideas, comments or information, you can via Twitter or Facebook by using at UK the capital B, capital T and a capital UK or emailing me at info at backtracker.co.uk Now, on with the show. This week's tale takes us to the lovely city of Bath and a discovery made by two boys who are just out playing Bath is a historic Roman and Georgian spa city. This is a World Heritage Site and is 100 miles west of London and 15 miles southeast of the nearest big city, Bristol. Our event happened in 1891. And what else happened that year? Well, on January the 1st, the paying of old age pensions begins in Germany. Between the 9th and 12th of March, The Great Blizzard of 1891 in the south and west of England leads to extensive snowdrifts and powerful storms off the south coast, with 14 ships sunk and approximately 220 deaths attributed to the weather conditions. On May 5th, the Music Hall in New York, which would later be called the Carnegie Hall, had its grand opening and first public performance, with Peter Tchaikovsky as guest conductor. On June 25th, Arthur Conan Doyle's detective Sherlock Holmes appears in the Strand magazine London for the first time in the issue dated July. Eugene Dubois finds the first fragmentary bones of Homo erectus, or Java Man, at Trinil, Indonesia, on the Solo River. But our event starts when a young boy called Frank Clark, aged 13, found a woman's hat on Bathampton Down on the 7th of August, 1891, a bank holiday. It started off a mystery that still has many baffled. Frank, who was there playing with several school friends, brought home the hat and gave it to his mother, who, with presentiment of a tragedy, said, I believe it belongs to someone who has been murdered. It shan't stop in the house. Around the time of the hat discovery, when Frank Clark and a police sergeant were looking at the spot where the hat was found. They saw a half-naked man in the wood near Hampton Down, about a quarter of a mile from where the body was discovered, but they couldn't confirm whether it was Coombs or not. This information was dismissed in court. Within a few days of this discovery, William Henry Dill was strolling on the down at eight o'clock in the morning. He found a woman's blood-stained lace-edged handkerchief and cuffs 
One cuff was on the edge of the disused quarry, several feet deep in the cave of which the body was eventually discovered, and the other cuff and handkerchief were in some nettles just below. The handkerchief was so saturated with blood that he didn't realise it had a name on it. He had also found a lady's 14 karat gold Geneva watch, numbered 57,080, and the chain, which he kept hoping that there was a reward he could claim. He kept them for some months, and it was not until the following February or March that he got rid of the watch when he did it in a raffle in the Exeter Inn, Southgate Street, and the winner chanced to be Miss Cottrell, the daughter of the landlord. William Henry Dill told everyone at the time that the watch had been given to him by his sister. The coroner at the inquest said he felt deeply on the point that if Dill had handed the items to the police straight away and done his duty, not only as a man but as an Englishman, the culprit would have come to light. The actual body was found by young Cecil Brand and his friend Alec Emerson in September 1893 in a cave near Hampton Downs some 40 yards away from the spot the items were found. The cave was in a corner of a rocky dell and was pretty well concealed by brambles and nettles before the discovery. The boys were chasing stoats when it dashed into the undergrowth. They cleared away some of the vegetation and rocks, then made their ghastly discovery. Cecil said at the inquest, On Friday the 22nd September, about 10.30am, I was playing at Hampton Rocks with my friend named Alec Emerson. We entered a cave and saw a bone. Alec lifted up a large stone and found a human skull. There was also a pair of shoes on the feet. We saw it was a corpse and went home and told my father who informed the police. Word of the week. And for this week's offering... I give you suggestionize, which is a legal term from 1889, meaning to prompt. The skeleton, as that's all that remained, was not lying at full length, the left leg being drawn up towards the body. It was obvious even from a cursory glance that foul play had occurred as the left-hand side of the temple showed the mark of a terrible blow. The bone was broken and bent in, the fracture being about the size of a penny. Then, the numerous large flat stones covering the remains showed that the murderer, or his accomplices, had hastily hidden the body from view. The police officers removed the remains from the cave in less than an hour, placed them in a sack and took them to the George Inn at Bathampton. The only witnesses to this exhumation being two pressmen. At the George, the bones and fragments of clothing were laid on a table in an outhouse to await a coroner's inquest. A close search was made for any trinkets that the victim of the terrible murder might have been wearing, but none were found. It was also remarked that there appeared to be no trace of a hat or bonnet. Dr Charles Harper, who examined the remains, said, The remains are that of a young woman from 19 to 21 years of age and about five foot two inches in height. There is a large fracture of the skull, which could only have been affected by a terribly violent blow. One foot was dislocated. I concur that the woman was thrown into the quarry, and that she was either killed by the fall, or first killed on the edge, 
and then thrown down into the cave. On the band of her underlinen was the name Kerry, which corresponds with the name on the handkerchief found. When news of the body reached Mr D. Clark, headmaster of St Mark's parochial school, he recalled his son. Frank had found a woman's hat at the same place. Mr Clark, on reading a description of the remains in Saturday's Chronicle, connected the hat his boy had found with the mystery, especially as it was stated no traces of a hat were discovered. He went to the police station and reminded the inspector on duty of the circumstances, but although an entry of the hat was found and brought to light in the police books, the hat itself had gone, and no description of it had been recorded. It was assumed that the remains must be of Elsie Adeline Luke, as the skeleton was that of a woman in her twenties, and no other young women had gone missing from this quiet area. What confirmed the theory was that the skeleton was wrapped in some linen, bearing the mark of a certain Mrs Kerry, who had employed Elsie Adeline Luke as a cook, from March until July 1891. Elsie had been fired after just four months of service when it was discovered that she had been stealing, not just linen, but other items as well, which were discovered to have gone missing after Elsie had left. And so it was Elsie's thieving ways that had served the purpose of aiding the identification of her remains. On the same day that the hat was found, August the 7th, 1891, Arthur Coombs was treated at Bath Hospital for a human bite to his thumb. It wouldn't have been strange, but Arthur was known to have been Elsie's boyfriend. The prosecution in court stated that it was when Elsie Wilkie was trying to defend herself, but the defence said it had been inflicted at a liberal demonstration on July the 27th. At the inquest, the coroner asked about the wound to Arthur's thumb. Arthur replied, I attended a liberal fate on the Monday previous at Lark Hall. I remained till the fireworks and then left. The people were then crowding out fast. In front of me was a young man, arm in arm with a young lady. Some of the fellows behind passed some remark. The young man, thinking it was me, turned and struck me. I returned the blow and he fell down. The lady cleared off and the man got up again and struck at me, but did not succeed in reaching me and fell down again. When he was on the ground, he tried to bite me on the leg. I saw what he was doing and pinched him on the cheek. And then he bit me on the thumb. Let me tell you a bit of background about Elsie Adeline Luke. Her former employer thought her education and accomplishments superior to those of her fellow domestics. The other servant girls agreed. They had even been annoyed by Elsie's airs and graces. Elsie was born on the 13th of October 1867 in London and her real name was Wilkie, which she took when her mother remarried but her birth name was Lutch, changed to Luke. That explains why she goes by two different surnames. Her parents had kept the coffee shop at the Tidal Basin Railway Station in Canning Town at the time of her death, but her mother and stepfather, Elizabeth and Frederick Wilkie, both German nationals, used to be bootmakers. On the 12th of April, 1880, Elsie had been arrested for theft at the age of 14, and harshly sentenced to ten days imprisonment and five years' detention 
at the Limpley Stoke Reformatory near Bath. She had served all five years, being released in May 1885. She had kept in touch with the reformatory and had been seen there as late as 1891, the year she disappeared. A newspaper tracked down Elsie's respectable sister, who was married and living at Tidal Basin. Elsie had not been a particularly good girl and her family had actually felt quite relieved when she was carted off to the reformatory. The reason she had spent her full term there was probably that her angry and vengeful character had displeased the matron, with whom Elsie had not been on good terms. After being discharged from the reformatory, Elsie remained in the Bath area instead of going back to her family in London, doing various menial jobs like dressmaker and cook. Her parents were even fearful that she was leading an immoral life. In 1889, Elsie had written to her parents asking for forgiveness for her past misdemeanours, but they were very ashamed of her and did not greet this letter with enthusiasm. Nor did her parents make any exertions to find her after she disappeared in 1891. Elsie was known to be a bit mercurial, fond of chasing the lads and not much liked by the lasses as a result. It was presumed that she had moved away with a new beau, and not much was made of her disappearance. It was well known that Elsie had been going out with the local lad, Arthur Stevenson Coombs, apprentice to a coach builder. They had met at the railway mission ball in 1890, when Elsie practically threw herself at him. Elsie's fellow servant remembered her smuggling a young man into the house clandestinely and going down into the cellar with him. Although she could not identify this dodgy evening caller as Arthur, Arthur said in court that it definitely wasn't him. After it was discovered that this juvenile Lothario had been running various other lady friends on the side, he became the prime suspect in the investigation of the murder of Elsie Adeline Luke. Coombs admitted to Superintendent Rutherford that he did keep company with her, but he did not kill her. Still, when Coombs was charged with murdering Elsie Adeline Luke, alias Wilkie, things were not looking good for him. Book of the Week this week, I bring you The Night Circus by Erin Morgenstern. Basically, it's two ancient magicians who set their two best pupils against one another in a magical contest. Its venue? A mysterious circus that only appears at night. But the only problem is the contestants don't really know the rules or how victory is determined. And when the contestants start falling in love with each other, things get complicated. True love or not, the game must play out, and the fates of everyone involved, from the cast of extraordinary circus performers to the patrons, hang in the balance, suspended as precariously as the daring acrobats overhead. Written in rich, seductive prose, this spellcasting novel is a feast for the senses and the heart. And now let's talk a little bit more about Arthur Stevenson Coombs who was described in court as being a thin, pale young fellow, aged just 20, and displaying considerable agitation. Arthur was born in Bath to William and Mary Coombs. He was a coach builder's apprentice at Fuller's Carriage Manufactory and was accused of murdering Elsie in August 1891. 
They were in an intimate relationship together and would attend meetings of the railway mission in Bath together, often going on outings with them as far back as 1890. In January 1891, when Elsie was working in Clifton, Bristol, Arthur wrote to her saying he wanted to break off their relationship. He had just been told that Elsie had got her recent position in Bristol by lying in her references. In spring of 1891, Coombs was very much in love with Mary Louisa Jane Shepherd, which obviously angered Elsie, and as the woman scorned, she made life hell for both Coombs and his girlfriend. During the inquest, Mary was questioned in court about letters she had received from Elsie. Now, you write a letter on May 9th, 1893, from Parsonage Lane, Chilcompton. In that you say, I shall be back tomorrow night. Mother and I had a quiet conversation this morning on different things. I must tell you all when I return. I have burnt all those letters last night. Now, what letters were those? They were letters that Elsie sent to my home. Letters that Coombs had written to her. Do you remember whether there was anything in them reflecting on Coombs? No, they were ordinary love letters, like anyone else would write. Did you read all of them? I don't think I read them all, only bits of them. A quiet fell over the room as Arthur Stevenson Coombs took the stand and questioning from the coroner began. Will you tell me please when you became acquainted with Elizabeth Luke? It was in the spring of 1890. I knew her as Elsie Adeline Wilkie. Where was she staying then? At Mrs Dykes, Free, Norfolk Crescent. And what was she there? In employ as a cook, I think, sir. When did you become engaged to her? I was never really engaged to her. I had not given her any engagement ring. I suppose you used to, what is commonly called, keep company with her? Yes, sir. At this point, Arthur listed various places in which Elsie had worked, finishing with her last job in Clifton. That was when he mentioned writing to her. While she was there, I sent her a letter telling her I did not wish to further keep company of her, as I had heard several things about her. Were they of a startling character? What I heard against her? Yes, rather. She obtained her last situation at Clifton by forging a character. You found that out? Yes, I was told it on very good authority. Now, who did you hear that from? I think Miss Shepherd told me. This was Miss Mary Louise Shepherd who had told him this. She would end up being Arthur's next paramour, much to Elsie's disgust. Arthur was also seeing another young lady called Miss Clara Thorne, a cousin of Mrs Elizabeth Coombs, Arthur's sister-in-law. Mary Shepherd, nicknamed Polly, had seen a good deal of Coombs and she was frequently in Arthur's company in the summer of 1891, going for walks with him. The questioning of Arthur and the letter he'd sent to Elsie in Bristol continued at the inquest. Was it a voluntary act on your part that you wrote that letter? Well, my parents wished me to discontinue keeping company of her. And that is why you did it? Yes, sir. Do you recollect whether you received a reply to the letter or not? Well, I think she came over from Clifton to Bath to see me. I suppose he used to, what is commonly called, keep company with her. She asked me why I gave her up, and I told her. Anything besides? Yes. 
I told her I'd become aware that she had been in Limply Stoke Reformatory, but she told me that she was a young lady, that her father was superintendent of the emigrants' home Blackwell, London, for which he got a yearly salary of a thousand pounds, and that he was connected with another institution in Germany, which brought him in another seven hundred sixty pounds a year. The Limply Stoke Reformatory that was mentioned earlier was a place where girls aged 14 to 16 were sent when they were sentenced to a period of detention by magistrates from 1861 and closed in 1895 after an outbreak of diphtheria. During the inquest, Arthur was told that two old school friends said that they had seen him walking with Eliza on Hampton Down during the summer of 1891. Arthur said that it wasn't him. He replied, From six till one I was at work. After dinner I went up to see the volunteer start from Queen Square to Devizes. Then I walked as far as the general post office, went along George Street and in the gravel walk. I met a friend of mine, Miss Thorne. We went along the canal and through a field into Warminster Road. Arthur and Elsie were seen together on Hampton Down about the 26th of July 1891 and witnesses said there was a huge contrast between the feeble-looking 18-year-old Coombs and his well-built 26-year-old lady friend. The following month was when the woman's hat was discovered. Elsie had told several people that she was pregnant and had once made a scene outside Arthur's family home in 25 Kingsmead Terrace, Bath. Mary Coombs, Arthur's mother, said that Elsie came to their house early in February 1891 and made a statement to the effect that Arthur had got her into trouble in the park. Arthur and his father were there at the time, with Arthur denying every word. Elsie remained for about ten minutes before leaving and never came to the house again. Mary, Arthur's mother, added that to her knowledge, her son never walked out or kept company with Elsie again. At the end of the hearing, it was deemed that all the evidence against Arthur was circumstantial, and he was discharged on the 17th of October, 1893. In the end, Arthur married Mary Shepherd in St Paul's, Bath, on the 28th of November, 1895, and they lived in Bath for a while, with Arthur rising up the ranks of coach builder. They then later emigrated to Victoria, British Columbia, Canada, where Arthur died on the 16th of December, 1952, aged 78. Since Elsie, Adeline, Luke had no family living near Bath, the memorial may well have been erected by some persons believing Coombs to be guilty and to have him shamed until eternity. Elsie's funeral on Monday the 11th of December was a sparse affair with only two police officers in attendance as well as the morbidly curious. Her family didn't turn up. Her bones in a small coffin were taken from the skittle alley of the George Inn on the River Avon. Not the least remarkable feature of the bath mystery is that the memorial to Elsie Adeline Luke in St Nicholas Churchyard is still there and has been maintained by a certain Lucy Barlow and her estate with a replacement stone recently erected. It has the inscription, Here lies the remains of Elsie Adeline Luke, aged 26, 
who was cruelly murdered on Hampton Down, August 1891. Now, an interesting little nugget of information is that Elsie is buried next to Count du Barry, who, 115 years previously, was killed in a duel on the same downs where Elsie's body was found. Today's news. Boffins have recently discovered that you don't need a parachute to go skydiving. But you do need a parachute to go skydiving twice. Ted Bundy abducted and murdered my dad's high school friend, Debbie Kent, in 1974. At least, Bundy admitted to killing her just before his execution but police were never able to locate her body. That's the topic of just one episode of Straight Up Enigmas, a podcast to explore the unexplained. Spine-tingling supernatural stories, historical mysteries, and true unsolved cases are all things to expect when you tune in to our show. I'm Jaden McKell, and I'm the host of Straight Up Enigmas. Our bite-sized, bi-weekly episodes focus on the world's strangest mysteries. Sacred and sonic geometry, the murder of Karen Silkwood, Turkmenistan's door to hell, the curse of the omen, and much more. Listen and subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you find podcasts. Back in the day facts. Let's start off with the 28th of February, when, in 1784, English evangelist John Wesley issued the Deed of Declaration, which provided the rules and regulations for Methodism. On the 1st of March 1692, in Massachusetts, a female slave named Tituba, who had been accused of practicing witchcraft, confessed, leading to further accusations and the outbreak of mass hysteria known as the Salem Witch Trials. And on the 1st of March in 1904, US trombonist and bandleader Glenn Miller was born in Clorinda, Iowa. He disappeared on the 15th of December 1944, when his plane, a single-engine UC-64 Norseman, departed from RAF Twinford Farm in Clapham on the outskirts of Bedford and disappeared while flying over the English Channel. And on the 4th of March 1905, a statue of a soldier with a rifle was unveiled outside the Victoria Rooms, Clifton, Bristol, as a memorial to the Gloucestershire Regiment. But now I fear my time is up. But before I go, I really do have to thank Molly Jeffries, Becky Vicker and Carrie Ball from St. Stephen's Drama Group in Bristol for their voices, as well as Henry Arnold and Ryan Hall. As some of you may be aware, I've recently had an accident which has resulted in my arm being dislocated and fractured, making it very difficult for me to produce shows. But don't worry, I'll try my best to endeavour to bring you out some really good content as often as I can. Which brings me on to thanking the brilliant Nikki from Macabre London who stepped in last week and helped to produce the show. 
You have been listening to me, Alice, on the Backtracker History Show. Now, this podcast has been specially edited from a Bradley Stoke radio show in Bristol, England. If you liked it, please leave a rating and maybe a comment. If you didn't, well, let's just leave it at that, shall we? I would love to hear from you. You can get in touch with me via Twitter or Facebook using at Backtracker UK with a capital B, a capital T and a capital UK. Or, alternatively, you can email me at info at backtracker.co.uk. By the way, the tune in the background, that's by The Model Folk. You can find out more about them at themodelfolk.com. So thank you so much for listening. And until next time, guys, take care and look after each other. <laughs>